Hi everyone, this is Ilan Jurno here at the Ayn Rand Institute. So what I want to do today is to get a handle on an appreciation for the depth of Ayn Rand's political thought. And to do that, I've invited a guest uh, uh, to join me. Uh, his name is Dr. Greg Salmieri. Hi, Greg. Hi. Thanks for joining. Greg is a Anthem Foundation Fellow and he teaches philosophy at Rutgers University. He's an expert on Ayn Rand's philosophy. He's written about her novels and her thought. He is co-editor of a book called Companion to Ayn Rand and also a new book, which is the focus of our conversation today, called Foundations of a Free Society, Reflections on Ayn Rand's Political Thought. Welcome, Greg. I, I want to start by going to this point about Ayn Rand's public influence, her impact on people's thinking about capitalism. And in the book, you, you introduce it by saying that um, Ayn Rand has inspired a lot of people to appreciate capitalism and there's evidence for that. But at the same time, there's a way in which they don't really engage with her deeper arguments for capitalism. So why don't we start with what's the evidence for her impact and then can you sketch out what do you take to be how people who are being inspired by her, what arguments do they make? Well, I, I think there's a different pockets of influence and different evidence uh, for them. But certainly in the, the business community, a lot of leaders of important companies, a lot of founders of companies, even ones who aren't politically aligned with Ayn Rand sometimes cite her as an influence or um, some of their acquaintances cite her as an influence on them. Like, um, I don't know if Steve Jobs ever spoke publicly about Atlas Shrugged, but Wozniak talked about it having been an influence on Jobs. And um, a lot of people, um, Peter uh, Thiel, Mark uh, Cuban, um, but just people, uh, Russ Tillerson, who was the head of Exxon and then uh, briefly Secretary of State under Trump, uh, a lot of people who are involved in the business community cite these novels as an influence, whatever, again, their political views, uh, and particularly cite Atlas Shrugged as an influence for presenting an inspiring view of, of business and of the career of being an entrepreneur. Uh, then in business, uh, sorry, then in politics, you have a lot of um, conservative right-wing politicians or political pundits who cite her. You mentioned the Wall Street Journal article. Uh, there's also people like Paul Ryan and Clarence Thomas who have uh, cited her as an influence among conservatives. Um, uh, th there are others. And um, then you have on the libertarian wing, which I distinguish from conservatism and from Ayn Rand's position uh, also, you have, I mean, like a, one of the most famous books on the history of the libertarian movement is called It Usually Begins with Ayn Rand, right? That people get into libertarianism because of Ayn Rand. Uh, another book is called Radicals for Capitalism on this movement. That's one of her phrases that she coined. So I think there's a lot of, uh, and, and then if you read just a little bit about the history of these movements and the history of the reinvigoration of conservatism uh, in the 60s and 70s, you see her name coming up all the time, and now you see it coming up in histories, uh, critical histories of this period as, you know, someone who's exerted a bad influence, uh, you know, people who don't like the more pro-capitalist um, neoliberal, as they would call it, um, shift that happened in politics in the 70s, not, I think, toward true or full capitalism, but turning back some of the anti-trade, anti-freedom, pro-regulation policies that had loomed uh, from the 30s and 40s uh, in through the 60s. Um, there's just a lot of evidence of her as a figure that people have read and that has had some influence on their thought. But I think she's often taken 
as someone who primarily is on about economics and politics, which I don't think is true, I think she's deeper than that, and as somebody who's in effect a, a propagandist or a, an artist who can kind of cheerlead for capitalism or freedom, but uh, not so much as a theorist of it. So I think there were a lot of people who were turned on to the idea that uh, business and markets are good, turned on to being pro-capitalism or anti-socialism or anti-statism by something of rants that they read, but then didn't regard her as someone to um, study to get the real robust arguments for this, but rather they then uh, studied the subjects in a more conventional way. And there are a lot of what I view as more conventional thinkers on the political right and on the libertarian uh, side, which I don't think is exactly the same as the political right, that people uh, think of as giving the real arguments for capitalism, uh, as opposed to looking for those arguments in Rand. But I think, in fact, when you look at people who do write um, books that are meant to cheer on capitalism or freedom, but aren't really philosophical or sophisticated. Those books uh, are lightweight. They don't sell well. People don't really get inspired by them. I mean, Henry Hazlitt, who's a, a you know really interesting as an eco uh, economics writer, tried to write a novel about uh, promoting a free society, and no one reads it, and no one reads it because it's not an inspiring novel. And I think what makes Atlas inspiring and what makes her essays inspiring to people are real insights that she has into uh, what human life is about, what kind of political system it requires. Uh, those insights uh, are sometimes formulated as arguments. Other times you can see the argument behind them or find them in one of her other works. And they're different from, and I think deeper and more powerful than a lot of the conventional philosophical thinking on freedom. So when you talk about conventional arguments that people make in defense of capitalism, so maybe we can just just flesh that out a bit. So, you know, I've heard people say it lifts all boats, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so what do you take to be the philosophical point behind that kind of metaphor? And because and, that's a very common view that I hear, particularly on sort of from conservatives. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it is true that a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and it's true that capitalism is good for uh, everybody in an economy, uh, except for people who are trying to seek the undeserved and various kinds of grifters and so forth. Um, I think people do better under a free economy. I think there's a lot of evidence of that. But it tries to justify it um, on the grounds that what makes a social system right is its effects on um, usually particularly on the poorest people. And uh, I think if you're focused on that, you don't really understand why capitalism helps those poorest people and what is really good about it. So I think what makes it good is that it's the system that's compatible with uh, the survival requirements of human beings. And what enables human beings to survive is something that um, principally the people who are doing best at surviving, who are doing it on a grand scale are doing and need. And you really wanna focus on what capitalism enables the great creators, the great innovators, the great producers to do, what its effect is on them, why, how it frees them, and how, therefore, um, they create uh, massive wealth, massive fortunes, massively uh, advance our level of knowledge, and then our ability to apply that knowledge to improve our lives. When we focus on the motivation of that kind of person, what kind of society they need to function in, uh, and so forth, then you understand what it is about capitalism that um, makes it better for everyone. So, you know, you, you were 
contrasting Rand with libertarian thinkers and then con some conservative thinkers, and then you put those two apart. So, you know, the other point that struck me in, in your introduction to the book, The Foundations of a Free Society, is that um, people try to pigeonhole Ayn Rand into one or more of the, one of these categories and that they, they struggle. So well, why is that? And, and how do you think of her? What, what category do you think of her in? Well, I think pigeonholing is, um, this isn't a phenomenon that's unique to Ayn Rand. People try to pigeonhole people mm -hmm. and pigeonhole things. It's um, what you do if you're not a kind of nuanced and flexible thinker able to um, deploy and form concepts in nuanced and creative ways to capture the phenomena. You just have a battery of boxes and you try to stuff everything in, in one or the other. Um, and uh, if, so one, if you're not kind of sophisticated enough in your own thinking, you'll tend to pigeonhole people. And two, uh, you need to know a fair amount about someone to classify them. And if all you know about Rand or anyone else is at an arm's remove, uh, then you'll tend to put her where other people are putting her. Um, I would classify her politically as her uh, a defender of freedom, a defender of liberty, uh, based on the view of rights. And I would put her in the kind of tradition that I would put people like uh, John Locke in, um, uh, historically. Though, um, and I think some of the people who today call themselves libertarians, and maybe some of the people who today call themselves conservatives, and some of the people maybe who call themselves liberals, can be seen as broadly in that category. But I think if you look at the movements, uh, libertarianism, conservatism, um, uh, liberalism, or left and right, uh, I don't think there's any real principles that those movements stand for. I think they're kind of collections of people with different interests that are mutually influencing one another that hang together for largely uh, historical reasons. So I think they're... Um, social factions more than they are uh, groups held together by, uh, by principle. The thing that I'm more concerned about uh, when we talk about philosophers or people who are studying uh, political theory, not just reading the news, but trying to think about what the arguments are. The thing that I'm more worried about with pigeonholing there is less pigeonholing Rand or any other thinker as left or right or conservative or liberal, although that, uh, or libertarian, although that happens, but kinds of views like there are two types of theories of rights, X and Z, or two types of defenses of capitalism, A and B, and then you think about any theorist, which one does she fit into? If you think that freedom is good or that rights are good, you either think they're good as uh, a means to some end, end or independent of any end. And then which view does Rand hold? It seems like those are the only two options, and yet she seems to hold both or neither at different times, so she seems like she's confused. And this is a kind of thing that you see happening often with um, thinkers who are a little deeper than the categories they're trying to be squeezed into. You'll often have a case, and again, you see this in studies of Aristotle, you can see it in uh, if you read studies about John Locke, is he an empiricist or a rationalist? The way we think of those terms now, he sometimes seems to be each of them, and maybe the answer is those aren't the only two things. Um, and likewise, I think there's just a lot of that, a lot of articles um, that are trying to look at Rand through a conventional lens of this or that issue in philosophy or political theory, where what I think she's doing is challenging the premises behind the categorization. I want to dig into the, some of the content in the book, some of the articles that you, you and your co-editor Robert Mayhew brought together. 
um, you know, when I talk to people at events that are sort of liberty oriented, um, and I remember this um, from being an undergraduate, I remember studying uh, Robert Nozick, who was a big figure, and he comes up a lot in these kind of circles, um, partly because he's, he's, he was really well known, he was at Harvard, I believe, and he's often seen as someone who's allied with Ayn Rand's perspective on capitalism. Now, uh, judging from the essays you, you brought in the book, um, there's, there's, she really stands apart from him. Now, and, and thinking of him as a libertarian philosopher. So, so say a bit yeah. more about that. And I think he would have thought of himself that way, and he's widely thought of that way. Um, and I want to say, as people in the libertarian tradition or movement go, I think Nozick is good. I mean, I think he's a, a good author. There's a lot to celebrate about him. I think he had a good impact on the philosophy community. And when I was um, saying a moment ago that there are people in the libertarian tradition who I would think of as belonging in this Lockean uh, tradition, uh, I think of Nozick as one of them. So I, overall, I think Nozick's a good guy. Uh, and I think his philosophy is really, um, you know, there's a lot positive in it. But there are a lot of differences from Rand uh, on issues where I think Rand is um, right and he's wrong, particularly in their approach to the subject of defending freedom and defining it. And I think the book, uh, particularly an essay by Ankar Gatte, really brings that out. So one of the ways in which Rand and Nozick are often seen as similar, um, the way a libertarian would put it, is that they're both um, minarchists. Uh, that is, they're not anarchists, which a lot of uh, libertarians are. Uh, they believe there ought to be a government, but it should be limited to performing certain functions, what's sometimes called the night watchman state. Um, I think this whole way of conceiving of different views of government is wrong. That is, it's like you have a scale, no government, a little government, more government, more government, and everybody on this side of the scale is the same, and Rand and Nozick are there, and so are anarchists. My view, and I think Rand's view, is anarchism is way different from their position. It's not a small difference, and they're not in the same camp as anarchists. And one of the things that's wrong with libertarianism as a concept is that it groups together anarchism and something that's just radically different from it. But I think Nozick's way of thinking of it contributes to that, to that uh, view. So to that, I think, mistaken way of thinking of it. So Nozick accepts a lot of kind of background premises uh, from Murray Rothbard and other advocates of anarchism and people who think that, that what's the proper thing to have rather than a government to protect rights is uh, defense agencies that compete on a market uh, to protect rights. And the, the anarchists argue that... Um, a government which is the exclusive um, user of force in a given region and tries to shut out anyone else from using force even in retaliation is uh, inherently a rights violation. And so they start from a rights perspective, or at least what they would call a rights perspective. Uh, Nozick joins them in doing that, as and Rand also starts from a rights perspective, although I think she thinks about it very differently than Nozick and then the anarchists. And then Nozick tries to show how a government could emerge out of anarchy in a way that doesn't violate rights, and indeed that it would have to emerge out of anarchy if everyone was trying to not violate rights over time. And therefore that um, minarchism is good, we don't have to stick around in, in anarchism. Uh, that whole perspective, that whole approach, that whole way of thinking of anarchism is something that is a, a kind of orderly society in which people might exist for a time, respecting one another's rights, and that then a government might emerge out of, is very alien from Rand's way of thinking of it. She would view uh, an anarchic time, even the best imaginable one, as one of um, uh, 
rampant rights violations. Uh, she wouldn't view the kinds of organizations that could arise for self-protection in that context as yet really organizations that are protecting rights because they wouldn't have the kind of objectivity that's in, involved in it. She sees the whole concept of rights as something that can only emerge or be implemented in a fairly sophisticated kind of society, one that couldn't exist without a government in the first place. And then um, she doesn't view, as I think a lot of this literature tends to view, rights as the only moral principles governing human interactions. So there's a tendency to think anything you do to one another is, uh, is fine unless it violates rights. And then um, we see um, rights is kind of exist, having to exist in a fairly sophisticated manner before people can form any kind of social organization because um, uh, people, even in fairly uh, unsophisticated societies, know it would be wrong to bash one another over the head and take all their stuff capriciously. But if you, you have the idea that there's more to even interpersonal morality than rights, there are more... Um, interpersonal principles of justice and so forth that aren't exhausted by rights. Um, you can understand how a society might form, how there might be principles governing it, um, even prior, and governing human interactions, even prior to the formation of an organized society. And I mean, Ankar's piece is, um, you know, there's quite a lot in it, but I think it's really revealing of the differences in Nozick and Rand's approach to the idea of rights and in their respective um, responses to the anarchist position, which are strikingly different despite them coming down in a relatively similar place about what kinds of things governments should and shouldn't do. I want to pick up on, a, on another point that I think some people who are knowledgeable or have encountered some libertarian arguments will find in Rand some something that looks similar, so in effect. And, and this is the idea of so the libertarians often put it as the non-aggression principle. You know, how, how, does she, how do libertarians view it and how does she view it? She doesn't have a name for it. She just says uh, okay. it's always wrong to initiate force on other people. Uh, Darrell calls it the non-initiation of force principle. Uh, the, the phrase non-aggression axiom, I think, is a phrase that uh, Murray Rothbard used. I think Rothbard was uh, influenced in his uh, formulation of the non-aggression principle or axiom by Rand. He, he knew her and they had some interaction. So it, it's not a coincidence entirely that um, they hold uh, similar seeming views and that this is um, spread in the libertarian movement. I don't know that there, there are no, there are some antecedents to Rand too. It's not like she came up with this totally out of the blue, but um, so they had maybe had some similar influences, but she was definitely an influence on the libertarians in this respect. But uh, in her view, um, it, she talks about force. Um, she talks about the human mind having certain requirements to function, what those requirements are. Uh, it needs freedom in a social context, what that freedom uh, looks like. And then force is the, in effect, treating someone not as someone to deal with by their consent, but, by, uh, but rather instead treating them as you would treat an object or an animal. Uh, trying to exert your will over them by physical means, by compulsion. Um, now, I don't think if you asked uh, a libertarian uh, or someone like Rothbard, for example, um, what they—I think they would agree with what I just said. But when we just when we start to think about what it actually means in practice, how they understand it applying, um, you know, what it really means, it starts to become very fuzzy. 
so does property count as part of you and something you could exercise force over? If so, why? And the tendency tends to be to think of property as the primary thing, and we understand your body and your life by analogy to that in the libertarian literature, whereas from Rand's perspective, that's backwards. Um, secondarily, what about things like fraud? Um, and this is one of the things Daryl discusses. Um, is fraud should is fraud a violation of rights? If I defraud you, have I uh, initiated force against you? And uh, Rothbard and some others argue no, because you know uh, you agreed to hand me the money. It's just you didn't. You know you thought you were. We, we agreed to this transaction. I'm giving you this shiny object, and you're giving me some um, whatever a horse. Um, but you thought the shiny object was gold. I represented it as gold, but really it's fool's gold or gold plated or whatever. Um, you know, we agreed, so it's a voluntary transaction, thinks uh, Rothbard. But on the other hand, there's not a real meeting of the mind. You didn't agree to like that thing pointing. You agreed to that bar of gold, and it wasn't. And there's a lot of issues of what consent actually is, um, that, and therefore what is and isn't voluntary, that come out of thinking of force as the antithesis of consent, and consent is something that involves agreement between minds on what the transaction is. I don't wanna make the libertarian view sound like it's just Rothbard, which is a particularly crude version of it, but then he's the um, paradigm of someone who believes in the non-initiation, uh, uh, non-aggression axiom, as he would put it. Uh, present day libertarians tend not I just, to- Can I just interrupt axiom. you with that? So I'm curious, so axiom is a philosophic term. What does it typically mean? How, how is that understood? So it isn't, any ordinary principle, right? It's a special kind of perspective on it. Yeah, when they call it an axiom, they mean it's the first principle of a certain domain of, of political theory. And there's a way in which you can see it as a first principle of politics. Uh, on Rand's view too, the non-initiation of force principle, but it's a, a step into the political realm from a deeper uh, moral foundations. And in her view, you need those moral foundations to really make sense of what it is. What Daryl's doing in his piece, Daryl Wright, or his three pieces really, is uh, exploring the moral foundations of this. Rand has this interesting formulation uh, that's really fundamental to her endorsement of this anti-force principle, that um, force paralyzes and negates the mind, which is our basic means of survival. And Daryl really digs into uh, what that means, what it means to say that it paralyzes and negates the mind. Those are two different things. Uh, he shows and he shows how they work in different uh, contexts um, and how with an analysis of that, you can address some of these questions about what the proper scope of the principle is, what things count as initiations of force and which ones don't. So I want to turn now to um, two other kind of points that come up in the book that I think, um, you know, the, for Rand, they go together, um, but people might be surprised to hear that they go together. And that is, she has definite views about the way an economy should run and that it should be free of government intervention. Um, and she also thinks that the life of the mind or intellectual issues should be free of government involvement. So she's for separating state and economics and she's for separating church and state or more broadly intellectual freedom. So, do, so what's, what's the, why does those go together for her? Well, both of them are, um, I mean, you can think of when they're seen as separate, it's because it's uh, thought that there's a real 
distinction between the life of the mind or the soul uh, and the life of the body, between this world and the next. So intellectual freedom is about getting your soul right and getting into heaven. Or if you have a more secular view, just reaching the truth and uh, knowing what's right and knowing how to treat people well in your immediate context or something like that, but not about um, how you live in the literal sense of earn a living, um, you know, your production and consumption in, uh, of the goods that life uh, depends on. Um, and if you, if you see those two realms as very separate, then you'll think of different principles as applying for them. But Rand's idea that the mind is our fundamental means of survival, our basic tool of survival, um, really means that the whole of intellectual life uh, is integrated with the means by which human beings survive. And this is a really deep uh, insight that the kinds of um, intellectual work, philosophy, art, um, advanced science and mathematics, right? These are the kinds of things that uh, enable us in one, um, they all have uh, inputs into our survival. They all help us live. And um, that's part of what's good about them. In a way, that's all of what's good about them, but not in a kind of crude way of you just want to see, you know, um, how much bread it will put on the table to know if uh, da Vinci is a great artist. Uh, and the other side of that, which shows why it's not this kind of crudely how much bread does it put on the table view, is the kinds of uh, areas of life that are seen as crude and coarse and just about surviving, like running a business, like... Um, uh, the kinds of skills and arts that are more directly related to production uh, in, in obvious ways, like, you know, making a machine or whatever, right? These have the um, kind of spiritual grandeur and the, the kinds of qualities that are thought of sometimes as good in themselves that we attach to art and to abstract science and so forth. And so what Ranfew is, all of that is of one piece. These are all things that are good because they're exercises of our mind, our faculty that makes us human and is creative. And as such, they contribute to our ability to survive and to continue existing as creatures that do this. And what's great about um, a free economy is it enables us to find uh, ways that are beneficial to all involved through you know, mutual cooperation for each of us to find ways to use our minds in the ways that we are best at and most enjoy and uh, hook them up with other people who could appreciate and benefit from the products of that such that we can live, survive by doing this. We can make a living by using our mind in this way. And if you really have that perspective on the role of the mind in survival and on the value of using your mind and how those two things are connected, then you're going to think that the freedom to speak your mind, to spread your ideas, is uh, really of a piece with the freedom to use your ideas to figure out how to make a business, to figure out how to make a machine, to figure out what financial relationships you want to be in with others, uh, to, to figure out how to chart a course through the world, um, to try to figure out how to create a self-sustaining life and self-sustaining relationships. Um, I want to circle back to uh, two other points before we wrap up. Um, so one of the takeaways I had from, uh, from the book is that, um, you know, you brought together an impressive collection of scholars, but the book is actually 
accessible. I mean, I'm not a scholar uh, in the same way. Uh, I'm not a scholar, an academic scholar, and I was able to follow the arguments. And some of them were I found really challenging, I have to say. And I and I I studied philosophy as an undergraduate, but I found it challenging in, in a good way. I felt like it was pushing me to think harder about some of these issues. So I wonder um, two things that come to mind here. Um, one is it's remarkable in the book, and I think it's a good thing that there's disagreement and you've brought in scholars who are critical or at least they're bringing different perspectives. Um, so one is, say a bit about that. And then second, what, how do you think of the audience and what kind of things should someone read before they, they pick up this book? Or what, what, what would be helpful? Well, it's really valuable to talk to people who you disagree with. Mm -hmm. um, you learn a lot and you learn a lot about uh, even what you think. That is, you sometimes come up with new ideas that are responding to objections or you realize something you thought was wrong. But even when you don't do that, you might see, you know, we agree on A, but we don't agree on B. And when we start talking about why we don't agree on B, we discover that actually we don't really quite agree on A. I mean, we say the same thing, but we understand it pretty differently. And this is the kind of thing that came out, for example, when we were talking about Rand and Nozick before. So the, the kind of people that um, are in the book, there, there are a number of philosophers who think, they're, uh, um, who think of themselves as objectivists. I think most of the chapters are written by people who uh, would either describe themselves as objectivists or very sympathetic. The other chapters are written by people who... Um, don't see themselves as objectivists or critical of various points in Rand, but I think think of themselves as agreeing um, on other important things. So there aren't anyone, no one in the book thinks of himself as a socialist, for example, or a statist. Uh, we have a couple of um, authors who are uh, anarcho-capitalists, that is anarchist libertarians, uh, one or two others who are uh, libertarians, but um, would see themselves as minarchists of one sort or another, uh, Milton Friedman or, or Hayek types, right? Um, and I think all, all really bright authors who, who have interesting things to say, both in support of their own positions and in support of some and criticism of other views of Rand's. And I think um, the exchanges with those authors, I think, are really um, interesting. They bring out what's distinctive about Rand's view, for better or worse, I think for better. But you can read it and see you know, how she fits into this exchange and how we, the authors who are elaborating on our views, fit into this exchange because we might be, um, you know, uh, expanding on her in a direction other than as she would have. There's also some, I think, smaller disagreements uh, between the authors who think of ourselves as objectivists. Um, there's a, a piece by Fred and Adam uh, elaborating on Rand's theory of rights, which I, you know, overall, uh, I think it's a really interesting and well-written piece, and I agree with most of it. Um, there's a criticism of that piece or a criticism of the theory as presented there by Matt Zwolinski, who's um, a bleeding heart libertarian, as he thinks of himself. Uh, and then I have a response to both of those pieces where um, uh, I defend and elaborate on Rand's theory in, in some ways that, you know, on a lot of issues I'm agreeing with Fred and Adam, but on some I'm parting ways with them. Uh, so just, I think that kind of a book helps one get a sense of what it is to really chew a philosophical theory. Um, I mean, it might, you might learn things about the particular issues here, but also it's, um, I think, useful and good for one to have examples of, of thinking through a theory, teasing out where the agreements and disagreements are, uh, teasing out different ways in which you might interpret um, the same idea and develop it. And it turns out that it's a pretty different idea depending on which way you go, whether that's the non-initiation of force principle or um, something about the foundations of property rights. 
Um, the other part of it was wh who the book is for. Or who? Yeah, so, it, so what would someone benefit from reading first before they get into the, sort of the in-depth exploration that you offer in the book? Um, this book is part of this series of the Ayn Rand Society Philosophical Studies series, which is geared, you know, primarily for um, professional intellectuals, uh, people who are uh, either in the field of philosophy or politics or economics or law, uh, or uh, in this case, because those are the fields that that one deals with, or philosophy in the case of the other books, or who are serious students, you know, contemplating going into that field. But I, I think the book is accessible and would be of interest to um, any fairly studious person interested in the ideas of liberty uh, and in the different interpretations of liberty and different views of it. So of, of Ayn Rand, I think probably you should have read uh, her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, uh, prior to reading this. Uh, if you've read and liked and are interested in that book, this is a good place to go for more. Um, and or read some... Um, political theory by other authors. So if you're someone who um, has read a lot of Hayek and liked it, or Friedman, or um, Nozick, or von Mises, um, uh, particularly Nozick, I think would be a good uh, you know, person to have read to then read this, or uh, other things by Zwolinski, or if you're a reader of the Bleeding Heart Libertarian blog, or of the stuff that comes out of the more anarchist wings of the Libertarian Party, or Cato's more sophisticated uh, uh, or more theoretical uh, works and blogs. So not just, you know, their statistical findings on immigration or something, which are really valuable, but you're interested in the political theory and you're reading that kind of stuff. If you're someone who's in that space doing that kind of reading, I think this is a book you'll find accessible and interesting. Uh, I don't even really think you have to read CUI first because it'll be a good, CUI's Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal by Amrit. Uh, it would be a good, it could be a good way into it, depending on where you're coming from. If you're coming from the, the um, fray of this argument about political things, uh, you might even want to read this first. But I think the more natural or obvious courses uh, to read Rand's uh, book on capitalism. So thanks, Greg. I want to close with just, if you can give us a bit of context, you mentioned two other books in the series that came before Foundations and Free Society and that they're products of the Ayn Rand Society. So maybe you can just give us a snapshot of what is the Ayn Rand Society, what is its activities, and how did it, how did it give rise to these, this series of books? Yeah, there's an organization, the American Philosophical Association, which is sort of, I don't know, the Philosopher's Union, uh, or the, the main philosophical <laughs> association in America, and they have meetings a couple of times, uh, three times a year, regional meetings, East Coast, Central, and Pacific. Uh, part of what happens there. Um, more so before the age of Skype, is that people would do job interviews to, you know, for to get a job in a philosophy department. But also, there'd be a lot of uh, papers, and um, there are various affiliated societies that uh, have meetings at these sessions and present papers. So there's the Society for Ancient Greek Philosophy. There's a David Hume Society. There's a Society for Realist Anti-Realists. There are just lots of different groups of philosophers with some special interest that they then organize programs. And the Ayn Rand Society is a group like that. Um, it's been around for, for decades now. Um, and they would hold typically once a year a program, sometimes we've done it twice a year, at, um, and occasionally we've skipped a year, at these APA meetings uh, where we'd have a program. Sometimes it would be a couple of scholars of Rand discussing uh, an issue in Rand. Very often it would be 
um, someone who was a scholar of Rander, an advocate of her ideas, and someone who wasn't comparing notes on some topic of mutual interest. Like we just did a, a session on the virtue of integrity uh, with um, Carrie M. Biondi writing a paper on it from a, uh, elaborating on some of Rand's ideas perspective and then some comments on it, one by me and one by Christian Miller, who's a, um, a philosopher very interested in integrity, not interested in Rand, but uh, was interested in, in uh, you know, Carrie Ann's views on this and had good comments. So this is the kind of thing we do uh, and have done for, for some time now. And uh, there were all these papers lying around from these sessions and they weren't anywhere available to read. Some of them had been published, you know, here or there separately. But at a certain point, uh, actually, it was when Alan and I were editing, a, Alan Godhoff and I were editing a companion to Ayn Rand. We were finding ourselves citing to and referring to a lot of these papers. And there was the thought, you know, why haven't these ever been published? Some of them have, but some haven't. And so the Society started a series of books with University of Pittsburgh Press. And uh, here they are. The first two were edited by Alan Godhoff and Jim Lennox. This one is Metaethics, Egoism, and Virtue. And it's a collection of mostly ethics papers that had been um, presented at the society meetings at one time or another, often in this um, paper response format. Uh, although not some of them, we just added extra papers that someone had or that we thought fit well, and they're not in a paper response format. Um, the second book in the series is uh, mm -hmm. Concepts and Their Role in Knowledge, also edited by Ellen Godhelf and James Lennox. Um, and this one had... Um, a number of papers, exchanges of papers that were from ARS sessions. And also, by this time, the uh, Anthem Foundation had really gotten off the ground. And there were a lot of conferences that um, Alan Godhelf and Tara Smith, but in this case, particularly Alan Godhelf, was organizing uh, on finishes in philosophy. And so there were a lot of papers that were being written for those workshops and conferences. And a lot of those are in, in that book. And then uh, when we got through with that one, uh, I thought it's sort of odd that we haven't done one on politics. Uh, there's so much interest in Rand's view on politics. She had a lot to say about it. And so I advocated for our next volume being on politics and uh, the various things happened. Robert and I ended up uh, being tasked with editing it. And we um, we had some, you know, sessions that had already happened on politics at the ARS prior to this. But for various reasons, I think... Um, maybe a little bit rebelling against the idea that she's all about politics. The Ayn Rand Society had tended to shy away from politics topics and do more ethics and uh, epistemology. And so we ended up having a lot of political philosophy sessions to uh, generate material for this new book and, um, and then just have some things written directly for it that weren't part of sessions. So that's uh, the, the series. The next book is going to be on Ayn Rand and Aristotle that most of the papers are already done for and uh, done for sounds bad. Uh, they're already done for the book. Yeah. And uh, 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 Jim Lennox and I are, are editing that. I'm not sure when it'll be out yet. Uh, but this is, uh, this is volume three. I think it's um, really long overdue. Um, my sense, and I think this more now than when I started the project, even, is that um, there's a lot to say about Rand's political philosophy and that those of us who have been the most interested in her in a philosophic, from a philosophical perspective have tended to shy away from those issues and be more focused on what we see as the deeper issues. Uh, and I think they are the deeper issues, things in epistemology and uh, ethics, but her approach to those issues 
really informs a distinctive approach to political philosophy. And I think that field has suffered from that approach not having been brought out enough and, uh, and has suffered from the divide uh, between the people who are most interested in politics and the people, uh, at least the RAND scholars, who are most interested in her foundational stuff. So I'm very pleased to have uh, some of those authors who I think are best on her ethics and her epistemology among the people um, writing in this book on political theory, and that includes Ankar Gatte and Daryl Wright, who we spoke about, and, and others. Well, Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about Foundations of a Free Society. I'm really excited for people to pick up a copy of the book and learn more about sort of what's inside. And I think one of the, one of the big values of it is, is it's really helping people understand both what Rand is saying, but also see where she stands on the landscape, the intellectual landscape, and how she relates and, and, and differs from other thinkers. So I think it's a huge value. So I just want to express my appreciation for that. Thanks. I hope so. So far, only those of us in it and a couple of people we've yeah. showed copies to have have had a chance to read it. But everyone, I think, has um, has found it helpful and interesting, and I'm hoping the wider public will too. Thanks so much. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.